In 1 Samuel this morning, in chapters 27 and 28, um, a significant amount of uh, Scripture, but there's a common theme, and that's why we're looking at these together. I'm going to read the first four verses of chapter 27, and then the first 20 verses of 28, so you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Now we'll jump down to chapter 28. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped up in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand 
and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. You may be seated. Newt Rockney, famous old uh, Hall of Fame football player, said the essence of football is blocking, tackling, execution, all based on timing, rhythm, and deception. Al Goldstein said, love is a deception and a trap. Sun Tzu, ancient Chinese philosopher and military strategist, said that all war is based on deception. So deception shows up everywhere. Even my favorite movie of all time, Fletch. Erwin M. Fletcher goes about to deceive each and every person he meets to get the information he needs to solve the case. He goes across as a pro basketball player, an oncologist, an airplane mechanic, and does it so well and so deceitfully. And then finally, Errol Morris, Academy Award American filmmaker, says that self-deception makes the world go round. Self-deception is how we survive, he says. So there are books now that show or that say that from cradle to the grave, your life, my life, is all a big bunch of deception. We deceive ourselves and we deceive others. There's not much of God in that anywhere, is there? It's enough to convince you right there of the, the depravity of man that deception shows up in sports, love, all of life, all deception. Welcome to Church of the Redeemer, where we exist to make you happy. No, we exist to get the truth. And ultimately, the truth here is that in this first chapter, in chapter 27, there's no mention of God. There is no mention of God. And we'll get a picture of what can happen when God is left out of the picture and faith is pretty weak, pretty weak at best. So if we look at our text, and what we want to do, if you'll follow along with me, chapter 27, verse 1, comes right after chapter 26. Okay, there's a deep theological point. But the point is this. In the, in the ancient Bible, there, there are no chapter segments. It's just one whole book. So chapter 27, verse 1, just comes right after chapter 26. What happened in chapter 26? Everything had gone well. Saul had just blessed David and said, go on, go on. It says, David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. But something with David happens. It says, then David said in his heart, David spoke to himself. He consulted himself. Previously, tough decision to make. David had prayed about it. Now, speaks to himself. With David's sleep-deprived eyes, 
He can't see God's hand still at work right now. And in a significant sense, he's deceiving himself because he's not seeing God's truth. He lacks faith right now, and he's deceiving himself. And we, we often fall in the same place. We have to admit we fall in the same place where we fail to bring God into the picture when it matters most. When, it's ta- when the times are hard, that's the best time that God has got to be in the picture. But you might say, well, I've got this tough decision, and I'm, I can't tell which way is right. Does it involve faith in God, or does it involve doubt in God? And in this case, David was doubting God. What, what would be the will of God for David in this sense? Is it just to get away from Saul and to be safe? How often, how often do we pray that? I have to admit, how often do we pray, Lord, keep me safe this day. Keep my children safe. Keep my spouse safe. Keep my parents. Keep me safe. Is that, it's not a bad prayer, but more often in Scripture we see, Lord, help me to be salt and light. Help me to live for you. Help me to be found faithful this day. Let me consider your name and the effect that this decision is going to have on the kingdom and on your glory rather than just Keep me safe. So we're called, we're called to speak truth to ourselves. Not just happy, positive talk, but truth and reality from God's word. And you see that there in your outline in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, David, earlier in the Psalms, he had done that. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? So he's down, but then he counters and he speaks God's truth. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And in Lamentations, the same thing there. Desperate, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So down, suffering, the truth comes. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in Spiritual Depression, captures the same thing. He says, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged or promised himself to do. That's what we're called to do. Speak truth to ourselves. And after convincing himself that David has no hope but to flee, he finds himself going down the proverbial slippery slope. He's now tempted to lie further lie to himself. Now let me lie to someone else. You might say, that's okay. Lying lying to Achish, pagan king, he deserves to be deceived anyway. David had deceived Achish earlier when Blair preached about several weeks back, just acting like a fool. David had done that to deceive Achish to save his life. Now he's convinced that king that he has rebelled against Israel, now I'm on your side. The bad thing with about this deception is that maybe it's growing. Maybe his heart's growing a bit harder to this. Maybe it's getting easier for those lies to come. And maybe that shows up when it's easier for David with the sins to come with Bathsheba and Uriah. We don't know. But it's not good to get started on that slope where one sin is leading 
to another. David's taking matters into his own hands. And he's looking at what he perceives to be reality. Got to save myself and not in God's perspective. So what, what is he doing while he's in the land of the Philistines? What is he doing here? Verse 11 of chapter 27 says that it was his custom. It was his custom. Or in Hebrew, the same word for custom is justice. So it was his custom or justice to go about attacking the enemies. So he would attack the enemies. He would wipe them out and come back and tell Achish, ooh, I defeated a bunch of the, a bunch of the Israelites. I have been warring and attacking and raiding and attacking the Israelites. Not really. He'd been attacking other pagan nations and wiping them out so that they couldn't come tell Achish what had happened. David, who had claimed in the previous chapter that the Lord rewards faithfulness and righteousness, is now living in ruthlessness and cunning. David killed all. David killed all, it says in, in uh, chapter 27. I didn't read that uh, part of the text, and maybe it's nice to kind of dodge that. But it, while it's not the main point of the text, we will speak to it briefly, partly because if you've talked to someone who's considering the Christian faith or maybe has a hard fist or hand against it, this is for them a, a skeleton in God's closet. Why does he go and kill all those people? How could God want all those people killed? And so, first of all, we'll admit, this isn't ethics 101. This isn't a super simple, here's your answer. And that's okay. That's okay. The Bible doesn't say that everything has an easy answer. But we will consider some points that are maybe helpful on this. And many of these come from uh, Professor John Currid, a local professor, seminary professor. So first point David, technically God didn't tell David to go kill these nations right here, right? There was no mention of God in this. David was, in some sense, acting on his own. But we realize that's not the full answer because there are other places where God says to attack and wipe out other peoples. So this doesn't get us off the hook. We have to go further. Does God want the strong to destroy the weak? No, no. God arises on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong. The Israelites were the weak, the dependent ones on God. But why is God so harsh? Why is God so harsh? And a better question is often, on the flip of that, why is God so patient? Why is he so merciful with you, with me, amidst our sin and being long-lasting with us. Another point that gets closer to what is going on, God is sovereign and he has full rights as the creator, as the owner of this land and he has said this land will be inherited by my people, by the Israelites. It's his land and the people that were to be destroyed are not neutral, good happy, friendly, loving people. These people, unfortunately, would rival and exceed much of the sin in our society today. Prostitution to the nth degree, 
child sacrifice was rampant. Immorality, rampant. These were extremely sinful people that God's justice was being visited upon. Israel wasn't immune to that either. When they fall into blatant sin and immorality, they're going to be exiled down the road. So justice does not show favoritism. Justice doesn't show favoritism. In these judgments, these judgments ultimately point forward to the coming of the king. Yes, the king who is full of mercy and grace, the king who is also a judge. And we need to be aware that Christ, our king, our savior, our judge, will come and this ultimately points forward to that. But now look at, look at the further deception here. What does David call Achish? What does he call him? Or how does he refer to himself when speaking to Achish? I guess he says, I am your servant. Did David feel any pain, any, any pangs of conscience in referring to him in the same way that he referred to himself with God? And how many times do our affections for the things of this world, or do they exceed our affections for our Lord? And then there's irony again in 28 verse 2, all wrapped up in this deceit. Achish either calls the bluff or falls for it hook, line, and sinker. He tells David, you'll be my bodyguard. You'll be my bodyguard. You'll ride and we'll go fight the Israelites together. Bodyguard in the Hebrew, in the text here, even though he's not speaking Hebrew, but it's the protector of my head. You'll protect my head, the same guy who cut off the head of Goliath will be the protector of my head. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. Crazy things are happening here when there's wavering in the faith. So, so why does the Bible, this is kind of a downer, right? Why does the Bible give us these chapters that make the good guys look bad? Okay? The Bible's real. It's realistic. We don't get to just skip over this. Okay, there's good news coming. But the Bible is realistic. And we're made of the same DNA. Without grace, without Christ alone, faith alone, we are sunk as well. We are sunk as well. This past week was the 40-year anniversary of the death of uh, the famous uh, female blues vocalist Janice Joplin, died at the ripe old age of 27. Her uh, manager found her in a hotel room, came in, and she was dead on the floor, overdosed from heroin. And the New York Times, quite secular, you would agree, gave this interpretation, which gives an important point for us. It said, despite all her success, she craved approval from teenagers and adults and even her parents. But ultimately, she felt like a failure. Her vulnerability was captured in this remark she made. After mega concert, thousands of people singing, dancing, basically worshiping her, 
She said, then I go home alone, lonely. She was lonely amidst all that. In the question, our application is this. When we're about to crash, when we're suffering because something's too hard, there's depression, whatever it is, what, what is our escape hatch to get out of it? This is too much. I need out. What is your escape hatch? What is mine? Some people want speed instead of slow. Keep things going. Keep me busy Keep me active so I don't have to think about it, so I don't have to reflect on it. Then I won't deal with it. That's my escape hatch is the speed. Some people want convenient instead of hard. Just keep it easy for me. If it gets hard, I'm out. I was talking to somebody just this week where they perceive something as a failure. This is a failure. Okay. Is there any way God could be working in this to, to bring about some good, to help? Nope, it's a failure. It's done. Temptation to quit, to get out. Because it's too hard. I need it to be easy. And if it's not easy, I'm out. That's my escape hatch. Or the escape hatch of entertainment instead of boredom. Keep me. I'm entitled. It should be fun. If it's not... I'm out. But are we to escape difficulty or to live where God has us? David was to be king, and he's to live into that identity, not get away from the identity that God has called him into, not escape from what is, he is suffering through, just to take what's easier, more comfortable, and just safer so as we go in into chapter 28, we see that David has himself in such a bind, such a situation, that really the only way out is God is going to have to rescue him. And so we're leaning in. We're seeing how is this going to take place. Achish has put him in his army. What's going to happen? But then we have this interruption. We're in the midst of the big game, and then there's an interruption. We get a news flash. You see, 27 goes to 29, but for some reason, the author has said, no, no, wait. I'm going to give you chapter 28 and leave you hanging to see how is David going to get out of this mess. Because we need to see somebody who's become so deceitful that he's even worse off than David. We're going to get a picture of someone who has fallen so far away from this initial semblance of faith that he even seeks to deceive God. Deceive God? It's crazy. Right, it is. Of course, we can't deceive God, but that's essentially where Saul is going. I don't like the answer you've given me, God, so I'm going to work around it and try to get another one. So as we get a, the lay of the land of what's happening in chapter 28, notice a few things here. In the text, in, in, in verse 4 and following, there are these pieces here that are foreshadowing for Saul. It's getting bad. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. In verse 4, it simply says that the Israelites set up camp and the Philistines set up camp. But it's the same description from back in chapter 4 where they set up camp, and then the Philistines defeated them severely. 
So what we have is the Philistines are setting up camp on the north side of this valley. Saul and his men are on the south side of the Jezreel Valley looking out. They can see the enemy there. It says in verse 5, terror filled Saul's heart. Terror filled his heart just as they had filled the heart of Eli. Back earlier, Eli dies when the ark is taken, stricken by terror and fear. Saul is desperate. Saul is desperate, and desperate can lead to bad decisions. It says he tries to get a message from God by using the Urim. The Urim and the Thummim were those stones where presumably the priest would take them out of his ephod and, and maybe do it once or twice, three times. If you got the same thing, that could be an answer for him. Problem is, whoops, Saul has killed all the priests. So no answer there either. So Saul decides, okay, I've got to have an answer, got to have an answer. We're going to go to a medium. Well, Saul had run all the mediums and necromancers out of the land, which actually was a good thing, but somehow there's still one there. How did they know that? Where was she? We don't know, but there was one. So Saul's being like that child who, I want my answer. I'll just keep asking. I'll just keep asking. Give me a different answer. So sometimes that works for a child when the parent gives in. But God, God isn't going to give in. You might say, well, wait, doesn't God give different answers sometimes? Well, here's, here's kind of the thing here. When somebody is asking God and they're not repentant, and he says, you're under judgment, the answer is no. I don't hear your prayer because you're just nothing but sinful right now. Answer is consistent. But when that person repents, they don't change. I mean, God doesn't change. They change. And now they're under the umbrella of his mercy, his forgiveness. He grants them because they're changing. God, in his character, he didn't change. They effectively did. But in this case, Saul's not changing. He's not repenting. Give me a different answer. Give me a different answer. No. So Saul asked for a medium. The medium, the medium was a pit used to conjure up spirits of the dead, as well as the person who conjured up the spirits of the dead. Same word there. That person presumably had a special knowledge through contact with the dead. So a medium, yes, a witch, the king of Israel going to a witch. So Saul, king of Israel, goes out at night disguised. And that point is not to be missed. He goes out at night. He has to get through the enemy lands because she's up on the north past them. And our application is that ever since the entrance of sin, go back to the Garden of Eden, we clothe ourselves, we costume ourselves to cover the shame of sin. The shame of sin. Now, guilt is real. Our guilt for sin is real. But for the believer, it is completely covered, paid for, done, taken by Christ. But our shame that we put upon ourselves, our shame that we try to cover when it's our sin is covered by Christ. We should be open about our sin. We disguise ourselves just as Saul did. Then Saul comes and he meets with this witch. She's fearful because Saul's going to kill me if I 
deal with you. And Saul gives her this blessing, this swear. As the Lord lives, you won't be punished. Okay, so yet another oath from Saul that you scratch your head and say, where in the world? You know, another lie, essentially, that he is unable to, uh, to uh, finish. The witch shows terror. Samuel's coming. She's terrified. Maybe because the first time her hocus-pocus worked. Who knows? But more likely because she realizes this really is Samuel. Oops, you're Saul. I'm in big trouble. Okay? Now, something about this, the Bible never said that this kind of thing was futile. It never said these people, when they conjure up whatever, it won't work. The Bible said it's an abomination and it's awful, partly because of what can happen with it. In this case, God in his sovereignty, he sends Samuel to give Saul a message. He sends back Samuel. Later on, he's going to send Elijah and Moses to, to Jesus at the, with the transfiguration, so God can do this kind of thing. This one, though, is a message of judgment. Samuel shows up. He's wearing, the text says he's wearing a robe. So we should notice that this is the robe that earlier Saul had grabbed and torn off. And Samuel said, like that, the kingdom is torn from you. A reminder to Saul again of judgment. Samuel says, the Lord, Saul, has stopped, seeking to, stopped speaking to you because you have stopped listening to him. It's too late. It's too late for Saul, and it's too late because he never really repents. At least we don't see that. And so many people feel like, well, I'll be like Ebenezer Scrooge. I'll have that time when on my deathbed, I'll get ghost of Christmas past, present, whatever it is, and I'll have another chance, and then I'll give my life over. Everything will be happy, happy, and I enjoy the life now, and then I get it all at the end. It's all good. But we don't know when the end is. Could be driving home from here, could be a day, could be a year, could be many years. We don't know. And the other thing is this. Why would someone who doesn't want to repent now and bow the knee to the Lord do it later? Sure, everybody wants heaven in the sense of happy, happy, happy place. I don't want to go to hell. That's awful. But heaven is for the ones who have bowed the knee and said, you're Lord, not me. It's not about taking matters into my hands. It's about you having control in giving that over to him and worshiping him, his glory, his majesty, not mine. So Saul gets that message, and the lady, the, 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 the witch, offers him a meal. At first he says, no, don't want it. But then she insists, and they have a meal together, almost like a covenant meal together, Saul with the witch, I looked it up, last meals for those on, on death row. And uh, it's interesting what some of those last meals are. One guy just had a little olive. That was it. Uh, I think it was Timothy McVeigh. It said he had pints of ice cream. 
Others have elaborate meals of surf and turf or just good old fried chicken, whatever it might be. But many of them do not eat it because they're so sick at what's coming the next day because they know that what's coming. Saul eats the meal, possibly because he didn't think it was going to happen. He was told, you're going to die tomorrow. Saul apparently didn't have a real high view of God's word earlier. Maybe he just thinks, I'll continue to take matters into my own hands, and it'll be all right. His opinion of God's word and of God himself seemed pretty, pretty low. Benjamin Jowett, professor, master of one of the colleges at Oxford in the 1800s. Fancy dinner one evening. Someone asks him, we would like to know what your opinion of God is. And he replied, I should think it a great impertinence were I to express my opinion of God. The only constant anxiety of my life is to know what is God's opinion of me. So as we close, there are two things to consider. When we are tempted to fear, when we're tempted, whatever it is, to take matters into our own hands, to make things happen, we have two choices. Essentially two options. The old song, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, captures that spirit of of New York City so well and in so many ways of all of America. He says there, For what is a man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. If I was Dr. Milton, I would have sang that for you. I'm not. I won't. (laughs) So there's your option to, to do it my way. Take control and do it. Or on the other side, rather than deceiving ourselves and thinking about doing it my way, we can instead depend, rest, trust on someone else. Leighton Ford tells a story when the bombs were falling in World War II. There were many orphans who were rescued and put into refugee camps. And there they were well cared for. They were fed. They were safe. they uh, They were okay. But they found that the children couldn't sleep at night because they had been so close to starvation earlier in their suffering that even though you fed them, they were afraid that the next morning there would not be something there for them to eat and they would still starve. At last, someone came up with the idea of giving each child at bedtime a little piece of bread to keep in their hand through to the morning. Today I have something to eat. Today I'm cared for. Tomorrow I will eat again and be cared for. And the point that a man named Chisholm makes with that is that faith is the bread in our hands. Faith is the bread in our hands given by a trustworthy giver the promise that his provision will be there today, tomorrow, in the next day, just as Jesus said, I'm the same. I'm with you today, tomorrow, and beyond for the believer. 
Let us pray. Father, as we said, your word is real and that we are confronted by sad stories, hard stories, because we live amidst that. We live in hard times, sad times, even good times that can tempt us to take us away, to say, I'm going to handle this and that and these and those in my hands. But you repeatedly call us back to say, it's not about doing that. It's not about claiming that I've taken care of it, that, that I get the glory. The glory is all that of yours. The glory is all that of Christ who has paid for each and every one of our sins, especially those of pride, especially those of taking things into our own hands instead of resting in our good and perfect Savior. For that, we thank you over and over and will continue to do it over and over. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we cry out one more time towards our Savior. <laughs>